0: Welcome to Bibliography, a podcast for people who love a good to-be-read list. I'm David Kern here at Goldberry Books in Concord, North Carolina, and this is a show about the way books make our lives richer. This week's guest is Tess Gunty, whose debut novel, The Rabbit Hutch, has been taking the literary establishment by storm. It's the story of a mishmash group of characters living in an apartment building in a fictional Midwest town. Think uh, South Bend, Indiana, or Gary, Indiana, or something like that. Uh, this book has received the Waterston's Debut Fiction Prize, was named an Indie Next pick, and perhaps most notably is a finalist for the 2022 National Book Award. Seems to have launched the career of a promising new artist whose work will be closely watched for years to come. In fact, Sam Sachs of the Wall Street Journal has called it, quote, the most promising first novel he's read this year. And Jonathan Safran Foer, himself a notable novelist, called it a, quote, profoundly wise, wildly inventive, deeply moving work of art whose seemingly infinite offerings will remain with you long after you finish it ever since I read the Rabbit Hutch I knew I wanted to chat with Tess gunty so I'm thrilled that she was able to come on and chat with me recently about her favorite books and uh, quite a bit about the creative life as well so of course that's why you're here so without further ado here's my conversation with Tess gunty author of the Rabbit Hutch thanks for being here this is this is uh, I've been looking forward to this and I'm excited to chat about your book and then also books that you love
1: thanks for having me
0: of course so Do you remember the first time that you fell in love with a book? Mm. Maybe you were five.
1: (laughs) I do remember there was a book that I loved when I was four called little old lady who wasn't afraid of anything yeah. so it was a picture book and i couldn't read but i loved the book so much i memorized it and i like knew which words were on which page and everything and the teacher thought i could read and so she took me to <laughs> class and she said, wow look at this prodigy but i couldn't read it we got one book by heart oh, yeah. but um i loved i love that book i think that was the first memory I have of just falling in love with a book. Um, yeah. recently my parents sent me a copy of it recently, actually, because yeah, they remembered that I loved it and I reread it. It holds up.
0: <laughs> Do you, how much of it did you remember though?
1: I, I mean, I was a little less impressed with myself when I reread the book. I was like, <laughs> okay, It's just repetitive. It, it's kind of just like, and the socks went boo and the sweater went, you know, yeah, so yeah. Uh, but I didn't remember a lot of it.
0: Well, you know, your teacher was impressed. So you know, that <laughs> goes a long way when you're four.
1: That was the beginning of me tricking people.
0: Into... <laughs> so were you a, did you grow up in a house that was that were, you guys were all readers?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, my dad was a big reader and he's, um, he worked at university. He would read to us every night. I have three older brothers and, um, my oldest brother and I are probably the biggest readers in the household still, and uh, there are books everywhere all the time. And we went to the yeah. library constantly. And yeah, it was a big reading mm. household.
0: So you grew up in South Bend, right, Indiana? Yes. So did he teach at Notre Dame?
1: He did. Yeah. He <laughs> um, his main job was in administration. He had a job doing he was kind of collecting and analyzing social data for the university, and then he would teach oh, okay. sociology. Okay. he semester and in the summers as well.
0: Hmm. Do you think that the things that he did as a job have made you interested in like the things that show up in your books. So like when I read the rabbit hutch, it seems like those themes there that would be in his work.
1: Definitely. I mean, one of his areas of interest, he wouldn't, I I don't think he would phrase it this way, but it was kind of, he studied um, violence this is one of his areas of interest was like global violence and global peace, um, mm. or like forces that create, uh, the conditions for those things.
0: Mm.
1: And he said that as he studied that he couldn't, um, stop. I mean, he just kept noticing that it was inextricably linked to the socialization of masculinity in mm. various cultures, um, across mm. time. And so he kind of pivoted more into, um, gender and violence studies. And I think the socialization of masculinity is extremely interesting to me too. And something that I think this book is, uh, is interested in.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, was that something that you were like, were, were you guys having conversations about that stuff from a
1: young age? Definitely. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's funny. I, I think I have three older brothers, as I think I mentioned. So yeah. I thought a lot more about the socialization of masculinity consciously than I thought about, um, the socialization of femininity so interesting it was, um, it was just a subject it was constantly in our household and i remember my dad would do things like take you know he would like take the personality tests home for us to do for things so yeah um and i think he was also just someone who really led a lot of uh debates and more rigorous um thinking like i just remember dinner dinner was always an event of, of yeah. debate and uh yeah you know, my brothers were really had these kind of uh, dominant intellects. And since I was the youngest, I think I mostly listened. But mm. yeah, it definitely set up a culture of debate and, um, you know, rigorous thought. Mm.
0: My I have four kids and I've got three boys and then a girl. So my daughter, uh, they range from three to 11 right now, but it's the same setup. It's interesting to watch her taking in her crazy older brothers <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's sweet is she so she's the youngest you said
0: yeah, yeah 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 she's three yeah
1: yeah so what
0: were the books that you were reading as you were growing up that like made you want to tell stories I mean, or maybe that's not something that you thought about when you were a kid
1: no i definitely thought about it i've been writing pretty obsessively since childhood um I, I mean, I was pretty voracious and omnivorous as a reader. I think Mm. as a child, I really loved fantasy and, um, I can't remember a lot of the specific titles of anything, but I do remember certain like scenes or setups, you Mm. know, there's, there was one book where I just found it so enchanting and it was like these kids in an attic found a portal into ancient Egypt. It's like I still almost smell the attic where they would find, you know, where they found this portal. I suppose like all of those kinds of, uh, that, that model for children's literature was really compelling to me, the Narnia model oh, yeah, of yeah. finding a portal into another world. Um, and I mean, I loved, I loved C.S. Lewis and loved, um, um, let's see what else meant a lot to me. I mean, in high school I started to read a lot of Steinbeck and, mm. um, I loved Franny and Zoe. So I was, we had this one class, that was um, banned books, books that had been banned throughout time, and so we read like Kurt Vonnegut and yeah, yeah, a lot of really you know Uncle Tom's Cabin and the Jungle and all these books that had this kind of social impact. That was that was the first time I think I understood that fiction could have a could be engaged with social justice, social injustice, mm-hmm. and um, actually make a difference. And that was really the moment when I thought, oh, maybe I should try to do this seriously.
0: So so then, when you were beginning to think about being, you know, being a writer as like an actual thing, was mm-hmm. that a part of what you were trying to do? Were you trying to write, tell stories, or are you trying to tell stories that are trying that that are that that are meant to affect some kind of change? Like, is that something that's on your list of goals for what your story will will do?
1: I mean, I guess I don't have as many um, idealistic. I don't have as much of an idealistic understanding of fiction's power as I did when I was a teenager. I think, um, you know, the dominant force of cultural change right now is probably television and film, uh, probably mostly television. And so I, I think if there's potential for narratives to really change the way that people think it's probably going to happen there. Um, and I think that the kind of rebel revolution or evolution of television right now into something a lot more literary and, more thoughtful and more socially engaged is really exciting. But you know, I still I don't give I haven't given up on fiction having <laughs> that effect. Yeah. But I do think it's just not, it's not nearly uh it doesn't have a kind of cultural dominance that will allow it to probably affect widespread change. But mm. I do think that it's still worth um I mean like I'm I am always interested in books that are asking questions that are yeah. suppose but, you know, operating on various scales at the same time. So, you know, taking, um, looking at the micro as a way to look at the macro forces Mm -hmm. that are happening as well. And I think that's something I'm always trying to do in my writing. Think about problems, social problems on various scales. Mm -hmm.
0: So then what comes first for you? Is there like a, is it a character or a moment or a scene or something like that? Or is it that problem that you're looking to solve?
1: I don't set out with um, any kind of social programming, okay. I think, yeah, or like yeah. um,
0: you're not like Dickens trying to like solve the industrial yeah. revolution.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think that works for me. I think when I try to do that, it becomes didactic and preachy, and mm. sort of um, Dickensian. You know, just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, it becomes a you, you know, you kind of. I think if you write something that you, if you already know everything you're going to say, that kind mm. of um robs the writing process of the most mm. valuable element, which is discovery for me. So mm. um, mm. for me it's usually an image, a scene, mm-hmm. you know, two different colliding obsessions, maybe a character, mm. maybe a little snip of dialogue, but it starts very small. Mm.
0: And then is it like, do you I mean I don't really need to we don't need to dig too much into like your creative process or whatever, but <laughs> for you is it about then you just kind of Start expanding on that, or does that image then lead you to build some kind of an outline, and then you're like, okay, I have a story here, or do you just do you just kind of set it aside for a while and see what happens in your subconscious and come back to it later, or something, all of the above?
1: I guess I tend to draft um, fairly associatively and fairly, I guess, in concentrated bursts of activity. So, yeah, my the beginning of a project usually happens kind of quickly; it kind of tumbles out, and then. The second half of the project usually takes me a really long time um mm. so I mean that's I'm only you know I've only tried to do this a few times so I don't know how this will change over time but I don't outline I think every time I try to do that even if I can see a scene in my mind very clearly before I write it it's very difficult for me to keep that thing alive on the page mm. Very often, when I know something beforehand, it's kind of dead on arrival, and so the challenge is to sort of follow the language and follow each word into you know a surprising but hopefully inevitable seeming um, result.
0: Mm. That sounds um, scary. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like creatively yeah. scary because it seems like it's you don't you don't know where it's going to go. It seems like it's a little tenuous, like like the grasp of that
1: definitely i mean i really envy people who can um sit down and and write from an outline i think that's a much more reliable mode of creativity and it's certainly more efficient and it's but i think real art tends for me in my experience of creating i can't make anything that i that i find uh worthwhile if I'm trying to apply a formula or a map or an outline to it, it just, it's, it's actually for me, a process that's completely resistant to efforts at efficiency or optimization or, mm. you know, um, and that's partly why I love it. It's kind of this yeah. mysterious alchemy. And, yeah. um, and I love the feeling of discovering sentence to sentence, uh, what's going to happen. Mm. kind of like the language is leading you. somewhere, yeah. just like the reader as well as the writer.
0: Yeah. And it seems like that would be interesting. You know, that's like, is the language then what's helping you get into like voice, you know, and and in your book and the rabbit Hutch, you've got all these different characters and one of the things I love about it is that they don't all sound the same (laughs) because it drives me crazy. when every when you have multiple perspectives in a book and it's, you can tell it's just the writer's voice for all of them. Yeah. And so is that like, is the getting into the language part of that process for you? Is that kind of what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think I'm kind of, um, A scavenger for language, I think. Mm -hmm. I've always been really interested in, I guess, just listening to different speech patterns and noticing how people choose to express themselves differently. And then I, I guess when I'm writing, I tend to think like with Jack's section in this book, Jack's section is this, it's from the perspective of a teenage boy and he's much more, he has a much more, he has a very different voice from me. And so yeah, so I was thinking about like J.D. Salinger and this one writer, Brees, T- DJ Pancake. I don't know if you know. Oh
0: yeah, that. oh yeah. He's a West uh, Virginia writer, right?
1: West Virginia, right. Yeah. Um, and I don't think Jack, and kind of The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Jennings. Mm-hmm. It was kind of, I guess reading the, rereading those works and sort of, um, I think Jack's voice sort of emerged from that, those uh, those atmospheres um, and that kind of language. But I think it's really important to me too to never include Like, I don't want to write from a character's perspective, who's really bad at writing. Like, I don't, I don't (laughs) think it's um, interesting for the reader, you know, you don't want to, but you, there's a way to sort of access a non-writerly voice. um, Yeah. So making it interesting and polished and intentional. Hmm.
0: Well, this morning I was rereading some of that section and I, I actually was like, this sounds like she likes JD Salinger. So <laughs> yeah. it's it's funny that you mentioned that. So do you um okay, this I this I'm just gonna ask this. Do you do you set out to in some way um imitate what you like about those writers, whether it's like Salinger or maybe it's Steinbeck in some moment or Anne Patchett or whoever? Like, are you looking at things? I I like this about that author, and I'm gonna try to imitate it. And I don't mean like copy, but just like allow for them to inspire you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I was re- reading an interview with um, somebody recently, maybe Ann Carson, and I know other writers as well who do this, where they don't read anyone that they feel like they're going to be influenced by while they're writing. Yeah. But I think I'm more like Zadie Smith, who says that she she will pull down the writers from the shelf as she's writing in order to kind of access something about their yeah. work, about their voice, yeah. and skills. I'm definitely... I'm surrounded by stacks of books as I write and I think I kind of pull from them when I need, um, you know, if even just like uh, books that don't seem to have anything to do with the work that I'm writing, like Anna Karenina, but I want to mm-hmm. remember how to access that kind of sweeping narrative, um, yeah, you know, immersive, like description of a social reality. And Anna Karenina has got to do with everything. So, yeah, that's true. It's never <laughs> irrelevant. <laughs> yeah.
0: There's an interview. Maybe they posted it today or yesterday with, um, uh, kevin wilson um and he has a new book out and they asked him a, about does he like to read things when he's writing and he was like he, he said something humorous like oh i could use all the help that i can get
1: <laughs> which yeah. i like
0: but it's just the idea that you know sometimes i think um great writing is is the for me anyway i love writing that feels like it has a lot of affection for the act of writing itself and that's mm-hmm. when it sounds like a or that's when the writing feels like it comes easy for writers. I know it doesn't. But I think a lot of times it's like you can tell that they love this process. They love language. They love other writers. And there's this big sort of like conversation of enthusiasms that is happening on the page. And I, I really enjoy that.
1: I like that phrase conversation of enthusiasms. Yeah. I mean, I think it. that's when it's most joyful for me. And I agree mm-hmm. that you can kind of tell when a writer is when it's a joyful process, when it's playful and when there's a conversation with other, you know, you're in dialogue with other Mm -hmm. literature throughout time. I don't, I also don't have that anxiety of influence. Like I don't really think I could sound like someone else, even if I tried my hardest to imitate them. I mean, I just don't think it'll ever end up being pure imitation because, Mm. um, you know, it will always pass through you and, and the language changes when it passes through you.
0: So I know you've, you, you've gone through an MFA program, you've taught writers, you've, you know, you've been writing for a long time now, when you were starting out or even as exercises now, do you, do you turn to other writers and copy out things they did or, or actually try to do things that to try to get to the bottom of how they're structuring a scene or putting sentences together or just playing with language? Is that something that you do?
1: I've never done that. You know, I, I remember Joe Didion saying that she learned to write by copying out Hemingway. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever done anything like that. I think um, I do tend to begin every writing session by reading. And then maybe sometimes if there's like a, I don't know what kind of narrative trick that's used in a scene that really inspires me, I think, well, could I use that? Um, mm-hmm. For example, well, this isn't really, I wasn't reading about this, but like the other day I was watching, um, my partner wanted to show me a scene from a movie from a while ago, but just mm-hmm. this one scene to see how this actress was acting it. Mm-hmm. And it was like, a, you know, movie I hadn't seen. And so it was a scene in like the climax of the movie and all of these sort of narrative threads were obviously coming together in this scene, but we had no context for it. And neither of us had seen the movie okay. and you sort of start to fill in the blanks when you're watching something without any context. And you start yeah. to, you know, Kind of activates your mind. How are all of these pieces related? And I thought, wouldn't that be interesting to have like a kind of a scene in the middle of a book that's from something else without any kind of context, and then it it creates this dialogue between the other narrative and that one. So that kind of stuff happens a lot. Where yeah, I I kind of encounter something and and think, could I try to do that?
0: So you mentioned you always have books all around you. Do you have something that you turn to regularly, or like maybe a couple things that are just sort of Tried and true things you can turn to when you're in a creative route. Or I know writers have various uh, opinions on whether a writer's block exists, but when you have, for the sake of conversation, a creative route or writer's block or something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Anne Carson is generally someone that I love to go to when I'm stuck. Um, I think the freedom paired with the kind of intellectual and creative rigor of her work is always really compelling to me. I think mm. she tends to loosen me from any kind of traps I've constructed in my mind about mm. what writing needs to be, or what a scene needs to be. But there's, I guess, contemporary poetry generally. I find the most um, the most uh, like remedial for. Uh, issues of inspiration Or just feeling stuck um, I tend to find Reading outside of fiction Is the most helpful for me So like hmm. Right now I have I often have like Three books that I'm reading Very slowly for a long time At the beginning of writing sessions So I'm reading this um, Penguin book of the prose poem the like an anthology Throughout uh-huh. time Of prose poetry And That is something is You know These very very dense uh, Incredibly diverse Wide range of um, prose poems that I read a few of every day before I start mm. writing. And I've been reading plays more. I think that they have been helping me think about dialogue and narrative differently. Um, yeah.
0: Do you have, who, who are some of your go-to playwrights?
1: Well, I just kind of got into this world, but, um, Paula Vogel, uh, mm. is really incredible. Amy Herzog and, um, Annie Baker. Those are the three that I've been reading lately. And those are really all really incredible playwrights.
0: Um, I love this because I don't often talk about playwrights on this show with people. I, for, I think that it's people go to plays, but rarely do they sit down and like actually read the plays. And I know you won an award for a play in at Notre Dame. Is that right?
1: Yeah, in college. Yeah. It was just a, yeah, it was a short play.
0: So is that something that you would like to continue to do? Or do you see like your scene making and your dialogue making happening in novels?
1: I would love to write a play at some point. I used to really, I used to be into theater in childhood and I just, I loved it. It was probably like my first real love. Um, Mm. And I always thought that I wanted to do it throughout my life in some way. But, you know, it just didn't, I wasn't, I was not like a, it wasn't meant for me. <laughs> but I think, um I love the idea of working in that world again someday.
0: What do you think it would offer to you that's different than writing novels or short stories?
1: Well, it's so collaborative. I think that's mm. the main difference. Um, I mean, playwriting itself, you can write that you can write solo, but then the yeah. play is molded around the actors and the performance oh, yeah. director. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the idea collaborating i think the idea of collaborating in film and television is it's so collaborative and you have to make so many concessions that i would be interested in that maybe some point too but it's there's something about this kind of um the kind of artistic integrity of the playwright paired with the collaborative nature of theater that i find i mean that would be yeah i'd love to try it
0: so do you do you have i don't know what's the word trouble with the solitary nature of writing fiction writing novels is that something that you have to like stay you know be steady against or something like that
1: I don't know I mean I think I have um I mean I'm I'm definitely introverted and I think I tend to draft best when I'm not showing it to a ton of people you know until it's ready mm-hmm. in the MFA I think I encountered this problem where I would show things too early and then the feedback would kind of um just depress me, <laughs> demoralize oh, me yeah. and demoralize me and to get, go forward with it, even though I think if I had drafted a whole thing, I'd be much more receptive and you know able to withstand the feedback and then apply it. Is um,
0: that in, sorry, go ahead. Yeah.
1: No, go ahead.
0: Well, I was just going to ask you if that's in part because when you're drafting, you're still doing so much discovering. And so when someone reads it and gives you that feedback, you're like, I haven't even... I'm not even sure that I've solved all the problems here or even know what this is supposed to mean or where it's supposed to go for me.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Like maybe the the particular process that I like is, is just really um, is kind of fragile <laughs> until it's over. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's just not as sturdy as someone who has an outline who can then just go back to the outline and kind of... Um,
0: yeah, this is what I was that, aiming for, yeah.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, I will say though that having a community of writers that I can turn to. I mean, I think the workshop model generally is extremely useful for me and generative. And especially when, I mean, I had this one workshop after the MFA, it was a group of students who I'd met through NYU, but we'd all graduated and, and we, we set up, it was just the most generative workshop I've ever been in. Everyone was really intelligent and really inspiring and also just really supportive. So that kind of setting is really useful for me. And I think in LA, I haven't really found something similar yet. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to get it back because it is really helpful.
0: Is it, is there anything about that group that, that was especially helpful because it was sort of outside of the scope of an academic program with the expectations that come with that?
1: I think you're right. I I never thought about that. Maybe the lack of, um, you know, a so-called leader was helpful. Um, I know that all of us were maybe, I don't know if they would all identify this way, but I i was certainly someone who was greatly influenced by the professor leading the course. So even subconsciously, I knew I was always sort of trying to please that person. Yeah,
0: yeah, and,
1: yeah. Uh, and so not having that kind of force is, I mean, that can be useful too. I think like when you really respect somebody who's going yeah, to be reading yeah. your work. It kind of pulls the best out of you sometimes, but that's the best case scenario. And then, the, and then what often happens is that you, you end up kind of pandering or contorting yourself to fit some imagined expectation of that, mm. of that person. Um, but I think it also helped that everyone was um, very, I don't know, just very, nobody was competitive. I think that was a, a big, yeah. a big part of it. People were extremely when they gave you feedback, critical feedback, you you felt like it was fair and warranted.
0: Do you consider yourself a competitive writer? Not in the sense that you're writing a novel to try to like beat other people for an award or sales or whatever, but just in the sense that between you and yourself or whatever, you're competitive.
1: I yeah, maybe it's like I'm trying to beat my own time or whatever, like a swimmer. Um, oh yeah, yeah. That's more. I don't think I'm competitive with other people. Generally, I mean, I have a lot of problems and vices, but I don't think competitiveness is one. (laughs) Maybe being the youngest in my family and just kind of getting used to being, uh, like, defeated all the time (laughs) in (laughs) games. And I don't know, you're just like, okay, I'm not good at this. Um, And i peace with that. (laughs) I I, I tend to, I mean, maybe because of that dynamic with my family. Yeah, yeah. like to be around people who are challenging me and who I find better smarter more disciplined etc than I and so um I tend to gravitate toward people who yeah who really challenge me and I don't feel like I'm competing with them I think the best feeling you can have is to read something by a peer or by someone you know you you can imagine uh is in the same realm as you yeah. and being electrified by it. You know, that's, mm. that's so inspiring.
0: Okay. So in a way though, your realm is, is changing. I mean, you've been nominated <laughs> for some legit awards and things like, I mean, any awards legit, but you know what I mean? Um, so you talked about the idea of like beating your own time, like a swimmer. I mean, what's that look like for you now? you got another book coming out next year, right? So that's not, are you do you feel yeah. like you have to um, beat that
1: i don't i guess i don't feel it in terms of awards so much or in terms of sales or any of those kinds of external markers i think those are mm-hmm. so impossible to uh seek or control that it's kind of yeah. you just have to almost detach yourself from from them even though you know they're like they're really useful and wonderful when you receive them um i don't think it's for me, it's never been useful to think about trying to court one of those awards um, as yeah. I'm writing. I think yeah. when maybe in terms of beating my time, what I mean is doing something that I think I know will be extremely challenging for me. Um, mm. Kind of giving myself a challenge that I don't know how to complete and that I am yeah. slightly, afraid of, you know, something yeah. that intimidates me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you've set, you set yourself this goal. It's going to be a little bit challenging. And then do you have books that make you or or, or authors that make you want to write that make you like want to reach higher on those goals? I mean, you've mentioned some people already, maybe they fit into that, but anybody else?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think I, anytime I read um, Maggie Nelson, Claudia Rankin, mm. um, maybe Jenny awful and Zadie Smith, um I love the work of Yuri Herrera. He's this incredible kind of novella writer who's also a social, he's a um, political scientist as well, I think, and he's from Mexico and he writes these just incredible, uh, perfect, perfect works. And um, every time I read his work, I want to write. I think I, in terms of like influences from college, you know, when I was first encountering like Beckett and T.S. Eliot and Shakespeare and really like yeah. encountering great titans of literature who felt so far away from me. Um, that was an, uh, that was an electrifying experience because I think I especially with T.S. Eliot, I think I think I read The Wasteland for the first time when I was maybe 19 and it just set my brain on fire and mm-hmm. um, read it like every. Uh, before every writing session for a while in uh, in grad school, and I had a copy of it on my wall. So his mm. poetry, even though he's a very problematic person, is always yeah. Yeah. Um, it just wakes me up. Mm. Yeah, poetry. I think more than anything, I love um, Morgan Parker mm. and mm. Tracy K. Smith and um, Oh yeah, yeah. Like Robin Cost Lewis and so many others. Ocean Vuong.
0: So. For you, is it is it just like is is it is the way the language that the the attention to language and poetry that it's what kind of ignites is is igniting for you?
1: Definitely, I think it's the the precision of the language paired with the sort of associative freedom of poetry. I think the best poetry for me, I, I often think of this T. S. Eliot essay on Dante, where he says like good poetry kind of asserts its meaning in your body before it it makes sense in your brain. Mm. Something like that, and um, yeah. I think that's really true for the poetry that means the most to me. Is I, I don't always it works best when you sort of let go of trying to interrogate it and you know bully it into revealing its meaning to you. It's better when you kind of just let it wash over you. And um, yeah, uh, I love Ariana Rains. She wrote this collection called A Sand Book, which I read when I was revising my novel, and she does this really well. These and she's also pulling from kind of. I think the best writers kind of pull from, as I was maybe referencing earlier, like she's not afraid to write very explicitly political poems that are also very personal and sort of, yeah, merging these scales. Um, yeah, I love her work. And Joel McSweeney was, she's a poet and playwright and fiction writer from, she was my advisor at Notre Dame. And she, she also just completely explodes the form for me every time I read her work.
0: Do you have, um, advice for we have a lot of people who listen who are young people who want to be writers or um well also not young people who want to be writers but um are trying their hand and do you have any advice for people um like that and maybe even some people that you would recommend that they read that mm. you've thought about this because you've taught writing and yeah. you've also been in programs that teach writing so you've this is probably something that's you know you have probably spent many hours thinking about what to write if you want to or what to read if you want to be a writer
1: when I taught at an, I taught undergrads at NYU and I was trying to assign them work that was written by fairly young, or at least work that was written very young for the writer, even right. if it's, um, I think right. reading work for me, at least my experience of reading work that was produced by someone around my age who was, um, fashion using the materials of my environment. So a contemporary writer who's, you know, maybe drawing from similar, mm. yeah. a similar world. Um, that's the most, that's the most inspiring work for me. It, it, and so I would, I would often assign Ocean Vuong, Morgan Parker, Reese T.J. Pancakes. He wrote so many of those stories when he was young. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, as his stories, I think, uh, mm. I love uh, so many essays by David Foster Walls. The short story, I think his most perfect work of fiction is probably the short story in Girl with Curious Hair which is called little expressionless animals or expressionless little animals. I can't remember. It's the first story in the collection. It's more like a novella. And um, I think it's, it's just really incredible. Um, Mm. But the truth is that when it comes to writing, like writing that's going to wake up your brain, it's really different for every person. It's, it's just, Mm. you, you can never know who's going to attach to whom. And so I just say read widely and read voraciously and sort of, I mean, you know, read translated literature, read literature from different time periods and different places around the world. And, Mm -hmm. um, and when something wakes you up, just, you know, pay attention to that and keep, keep finding things that are in that um, space for you. And then in terms of like advice I often give is like, write as though you will never be published. And by that, I mean, write the thing that you would write, even if you knew, it would never get published. What would, mm. what's the thing that you feel like you have to write? If, if only mm. five people read it, what, mm. what would you write? Mm. And there's a piece of advice that uh, is from Jeffrey Eugenides. It's called, it's like uh, he often tells his students to write as though it's the best letter you ever wrote to your smartest friend. <laughs> and it kind of reminds <laughs> me of want to get advice, which is like write to please only one person. If you, open all the windows of your story to the world and make love to the world, your story will get pneumonia. And mm. I think that that's really, for me, that's very useful to kind of shut out the idea of a wider audience or a market that you're pandering to, yeah. that you're trying to yeah, yeah. and to write for someone that you think is smarter than you, someone that you know really well, who's smarter than you. That's a really, mm. that's a very energizing mm. way to think about it.
0: When I think about like some of these things you're saying though, or even like reading people who are young who wrote very successfully when they're young.
1: Mm-hmm. Does
0: not it doesn't ever just make you feel bad about yourself? <laughs> like last <laughs> night, I'm working on this story and I kind of stopped to take a break and I go and I uh, have this. I have you know a collection of Hemingway's stories just in my studio here. So I pulled it out and I'm reading the story and I look at it. It's written like 1925 and he was like 13 when he wrote it.
1: <laughs> like 13? I,
0: no, not really. But he was like you know he's like a, he's like 23 and he's writing these amazing stories that are kind of part yeah, right. of like the American canon now. And right. you think like, yeah, I'll be 72 and I'll never do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know what you mean. I guess I like to assign writing that's the same age as the students. So, you know, maybe reading like prodigies when you're now our age is like depressing, but <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. when you're, um, maybe when you're young and you read that when you're the same age, when you're 23 and you're like, wow, someone our age can do this. Like um, maybe, but I know what you mean. I think, I don't, I guess I don't tend to, it's very rare that I, I tend to feel despair when I encounter something so great, you know, it's like, it's so.
0: That's that's, that's the better (laughs) response. (laughs) Ah, is better than feeling bad about yourself.
1: (laughs) Maybe also just accepting that, you know, he was he was a different person in a different world in a different yeah. time period, and you know, I I guess I I don't know. I I guess it's it's helpful to read. I guess it's helpful for me to read things that I feel like are yeah. just so much better than I'll ever make.
0: Oh yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> I, like I think for me, one of the things it, I don't know why we're getting into me here. For me, one of the big things is like it's so hard to 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 pull, strip self consciousness or self-awareness mm-hmm. away from the creative process. And so sometimes I'll look at something that's great and then I'll be like, I could never do that. Or how did he do that? I don't think I can get there. And then suddenly I'm I'm self-aware of what I'm doing. And that self-awareness is like harmful to the process. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. There's I not a
0: question you... there I'm realizing now, but...
1: <laughs> no, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, I think that is a big part of the, um, just the work of writing it's like getting over yourself and sort of all of these traps that you construct for yourself all the time i mean it's like it's the work of a lifetime to yeah. be able to sit down without any of those traps and maybe some of the traps are helpful like maybe it gives you some something to work around or to yeah. look at or to work through and but um you know i think there's probably more of a relationship between like psychiatry, psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis and therapy and writing than there is between writing and any other art form.
0: Mm. That's interesting. I going have to think about that. Okay. <laughs> I've kept you longer than I said I would. Uh, well, you got time for one more question? Just a quick one? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what's the best thing you've read lately that you just think people have to have to know about?
1: Oh, um, the first thing that came to mind was If I Survive You by Jonathan Escoffrey. It's um, mm. a short story collection and... He, I know he worked on it for a really long time, like 10 years or something. He was working on these stories and, um, I've met him a few times and he's just a really good guy too, but it's just like, it's just mind-blowingly good. It's Mm. so so good.
0: (laughs) I've got that in the shop and I haven't had a chance to crack it open. So I'm moving it to the top of my list.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I really recommend it.
0: All right, well, thank you so much for taking the time, for spending a little extra time and uh, congratulations on the success of The Rabbit Hutch and good luck on on the next book.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for your thoughtful questions.
0: That was Tess Gunty. Thanks so much to her for joining me and thanks to you, of course, for checking out our show. Be sure to grab a copy of The Rabbit Hutch if you have yet to do so. You can do that through our shop if you'd like to. It's bookshop.org slash shop slash Goldberry Books or grab it from your local bookstore. Uh, This has been Bibliography. I'm David Kern. Post-production is by Logan Green. Thanks for listening and hope you found a book or two to add to your own to-be-read list. Until next time, happy reading.